Good evening. So glad you tuned in this evening. If you were to die at this moment, where would you spend eternity? Heaven or hell? That is the question that so many preachers pose to their congregation when they want them to think more seriously about their own mortality. It's the question that many, many folks ask of the pupil that they're studying the Bible with. Youth ministers ask their youth to ponder this question when they want them to think about their own mortality. And sadly, it's a question that we don't always have a clear-cut answer for. Many people answer with, well, I hope I go to heaven, or some even answer with, I, I don't really know. I don't think it's the best question. I don't think it's a terrible question, but in my opinion, it's not the best question. No, the best question in my mind is this one. Are you in Christ? Simple, to the point, and it certainly leaves no doubt as to where you'll spend eternity. Either you are in Christ or you are outside of Christ, and it's really that simple. And I like this question better because it gets to the heart of what salvation is all about, which is relationship. This isn't just about where I go when I die. This is about being with the Lord now, partnering with Him in His great rescue mission, and then ruling and reigning with Him for all eternity. You see, here's the problem as I see it. Framing the discussion in terms of where we will go when we die kind of feeds a rules-based for performance-based mentality, and that mentality has really plagued Christians for many years. You know, I'm not a big fan of, of board games or, or card games or video games or really any games in general. It's just not something that I'm really into. I, I know that I'm probably a minority here because when it comes to church, when it comes to Christians, we like three things above all else, don't we? We like God, we like casseroles, and we like playing games. And the fact that I only like really one of those probably means I need my Church of Christ card taken away from me. But I've been to gatherings where I've sat down with folks that like to play games, and there's always a question that gets asked before any game gets played, and you probably know what that question is. What are the rules? Right before we engage in any game, if, if we've never played that game before or we're a little you know, sketchy on the details of it, we ask that question. First and foremost, you have to you know, educate everybody on the rules. That's where you always start. Before you can play any game, the participants have to know what is the goal of the game. What are the rules and how do I win? What are the rules? What is the goal? And, and that's really how many people view Christianity, unfortunately. What are the rules and how do I win? Do you know who else looked at religion and a relationship with God that way? Yeah, the Pharisees did. They had a very mechanical mindset when it came to the law. Do this, don't do that. Here's how you, here's how you win. But they weren't winning. They were losing, in fact. Jesus' message to them was, you're not winning. You're losing because you don't have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. I'm afraid that all too often, that's how Christians approach Christianity and a relationship with God. Mechanical rather than relational. And we've got to know that this doesn't work. I mean, how many of you treat your marriage this way? You can't treat your marriage in a mechanical way. You can't go up to your wife, guys, and say, Honey, just tell me, what are the rules and how do I win? That's not how this whole thing works. What are your triggers? What buttons do I need to avoid pushing? Try doing marriage that way and see how successful it is. You can't operate mechanically as a parent either. You can't treat parenting that way. 
You can't treat friendships this way. What can I do? What can I not do? How do I win? You're always going to lose if that's the approach that you're taking. Because meaningful relationships are more important than just following the rules and winning. This isn't a game. Do you know how a relationship with God is described in Scripture? Old Testament and New, a relationship with God is defined as a covenant. A covenant is solemn and binding. I can tell you what a covenant is not. It's not about mechanics. Remember the words of the prophet Hosea. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The prophet Micah said, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's not just about coming to church every time the doors are open. It's not just about doing right things when you're here on Sunday or Wednesday. It's how we live. It's about doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with our God. In a world that perverts justice and even denies it to some, we must live out something different. In a world that can be very unloving and unmerciful, we must love at the highest level and kill people with kindness. And in a world that rejects God and His will, We must be salt of the earth and lights in the world. We must love what God loves and live to please Him. Now, before we go any further, I want to be very clear here that relationships involve rules. They just do. And I'm certainly not trying to abandon rules or to say that they don't matter because they absolutely do. Relationships have rules. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And take special note of those first few words and the tone that they set. If you love me, love drives the rules. The rules were put in place because God loves his people and he wants what is best for them. And hopefully we obey the rules because we love God and we want to glorify him in all that we do. And we want to spend eternity with him. Relationships have rules. They do with our earthly relationships. In marriage, the Bible is clear that if you want a godly marriage, don't be selfish. Be sacrificial. Be faithful. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Love, honor, and cherish one another till death do you part. There's even rules for parenting. Raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Paul says. Do not exasperate your child. Provide for them. Protect them. Lead them. Relationships have rules. But relationships are not just about mechanics. Feelings are involved. There is an impetus behind all of this. I had a gentleman tell me one time that he had been a faithful husband to his wife for 30 years because he had never cheated on her. That doesn't necessarily mean you've been faithful in all respects. Just because you haven't cheated doesn't mean that you've always been faithful, right? It's not just about not doing something. That's mechanical. It's not just about following all the rules, therefore I'm good. There's a standard. The Pharisees had a standard, and that standard was compliance over relationship. Mechanical over relational. You know, Jesus never focused on mere compliance. 
Jesus always focused on conversion. Here's proof. Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You go to Matthew 5, 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Matthew 5, 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see this recurring theme over and over again, conversion over compliance. This is not just about adjusting behavior because that's all rules do. Rules simply modify behavior. That's all that they do. You can follow all the rules with very little feeling. You can do so without love. That's called mechanics. Machines don't feel anything. Jesus didn't come to turn us all into robots. He came to transform people into the likeness of him. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1 and following, it reads, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Jesus isn't isn't condemning the Pharisees for keeping the law. He's not condemning the Pharisees because of their strict adherence to the law. It wasn't bad that they followed the law. In fact, that's what they were supposed to be doing. Jesus criticizes them because they had placed compliance over relationship. Notice verses 10 through 14. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone, they are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit." problem with the Pharisees is that they didn't know the law or they didn't obey the law. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that they didn't know God who authored the law. They didn't have a right relationship with the one who put the law in place. They placed hand washing above relationships. All they cared about was was rote mechanical obedience to their often absurd man-made traditions. And they thought that this made them right with God. We have our traditions, don't we? Sure we do. Meeting on Wednesday nights is a tradition. It's a good tradition. Offering an invitation at the end of the sermon, that's a tradition. In my mind, it's a good tradition. Not all traditions are bad, but do you know when a tradition becomes bad? When compliance to them overrides a relationship with the Heavenly Father. We have commandments. We come together on the first day of the week to break bread. We take communion every Lord's Day, but what motivates those things? Let me ask it another way. Let's go back to the question that I opened with. If you were to die at this very moment, would you go to heaven or hell? And if you say heaven, what's the reason for that? Because you kept all the rules? Because you were here every time the doors were open? 
because you read your Bible every day? You know, when it comes to, when it comes to following God's commands, we often turn it into dotting every I and crossing every T. That seems to be the standard for many of us. But it seems like I recall Jesus saying these words in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus says, I never knew you. Checklist Christianity is not the goal. That's not how you win. Salvation is found in a relationship. Remember when the prodigal son returned home? Remember what the father said to him as he embraced him and kissed him all over? For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. Life was in the father's household. Life was found in the father's presence. Apart from the father, the son was dead spiritually. I have a dear friend. We agree on a lot of things theologically. One of the few things we disagree on is the doctrine of once saved, always saved. And I asked my friend one day, I said, can you explain why you believe that once you're saved, you're always saved? And he said something like this. He said, you know, Chris, if we didn't see each other for 20 years, we would still be friends, wouldn't we? I said, of course. We didn't have close fellowship for 20 years, but we were still friends, even though we really didn't see each other. He said, it's the same way. I may not have close fellowship with God for 20 years, but I'm still saved because he still loves me and I love him. Here's why I disagree with that. Because fellowship is your salvation. Salvation is tied to the relationship. Being in Christ, being in fellowship with God is what it's all about. The two cannot be separated. Fellowship with the Heavenly Father, a relationship with Jesus Christ, is what it's all about. God has a plan to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. That's what it's all about. It's about relationship. It's about fellowship. And it's not about mere compliance. Confidence in salvation should be based on being in Christ, being close to God, not just being a rule follower. But there's something else. I think much of our struggle with assurance of salvation stems from a performance-based mindset. And this, this belief has kept a lot of people from being at their best in Christ. Believing that God is only pleased with me because I follow all the rules, because I dot every I and cross every T. A big part of what holds us back is the fact that we don't always view our in-Christ relationship as what truly gives us identity and what defines us. And the case in point is how many times have you heard or said to yourself, well, you know, I'm a sinner. I'm just a sinner. I, I, I'm a sinner like everybody else. Are you, though? If you're in Christ, is that really what you are? Because the Bible doesn't use the word sinner as a label for someone who is a faithful child of God. The word sinner in Scripture refers to someone who is living in sin or someone who is guilty of a particularly egregious offense. And that's not you. Now, we'll say this, we all deserve the label, right? We all deserve to wear the moniker of sinner. I mean, we've earned that title. However, when Jesus saves, he reforms. There is no forgiveness without reformation. Again, this is not about compliance, it's about conversion. 
It's about more than forgiveness. It's about change. And some of you may be thinking, well, Chris, Paul referred to himself as the chief of sinners, didn't he? And that's true. I mean, we see it in 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul refers to himself as not just a sinner, but the chief of sinners. However, he's not defining himself that way because you look at the next verse, it says, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, I found mercy. He's talking about who he was before. He was the chief of sinners before he found mercy. Paul is an object lesson for the mercy of Jesus. Through Paul, Jesus says to the world, if I can save a guy like that, then certainly I can save you. You can go back and check this yourself, but I don't believe there's any other passage in the Bible where, where a person who has been saved refers to themselves as a sinner. Because where there is forgiveness, there is reformation. There is conversion. There's a new identity. And the reason why this is important is because the more you tell yourself you're a sinner, the more you're probably going to believe it. This does damage to our spiritual self-esteem. It, 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 it does damage to our expectations. It affects our self-worth. It might even affect our motivation. And that's why I think it's important for Christians to, to stop calling themselves sinners if they're in Christ, right? For one, it's not biblical. And secondly, it can lead to a very unhealthy self-image. You were buried with Christ. You're not a sinner anymore. You know what the Bible would refer to you as? If you're a child of God, you're not a sinner. You know what you are? You're a saint. This moniker is used over and over again for the brethren, for the people of God. Even when Paul had to correct Christians, he refers to them as saints. You see that to the letters to the Corinthians. I mean, this was a messed up church. And yet Paul repeatedly referred to them as saints, not sinners. This matters. Because if you constantly refer to yourself as a sinner when you're not, it's going to affect your thinking. You're a saint. That's your identity. Peter puts it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I love Peter's tone here. Notice, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You were, meaning you're not anymore, you were once not a people, ones who had not received mercy. But now you're different. You're not those things anymore. Your identity is different. You're not, you're not what you were. You've been forgiven, you're reformed, and you are in Christ. You know, it's stinking thinking to, to constantly have thoughts rolling around in your mind that you're still a sinner when you're not. I mean, if you're, if you're raising a child and you, you care about their self-esteem, you're not going to tell them daily that they're, that they're no good, that they're, you know, that they're dumb, that they're overweight, that they're ugly or whatever. That's not going to help their self-esteem very much. But if you want them to think well about themselves, you still want to be humble, you don't want to be a spoiled brat, but if you want them to think better about themselves, you're going to praise them. You're going to constantly tell them, that they are maybe even better than what they are because you want them to think more of themselves than maybe they currently think. Because much of our child's identity is wrapped up in what his or her parents think of them, right? That's where we kind of get our first impression of who we are is from our parents. 
And the same is true when we talk about our identity in Christ. We look to Jesus. We look to the relationship to define who we are, not any other external factors. We are different now. We're not who we once were. You're not a sinner. You're a saint. Who you once were does not identify you. You are Christ's. You are his. That determines where you will spend eternity. And so I'm going to end with the question I began with. Are you in Christ? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another day. We thank you so much for the opportunity that we have each and every day, each and every moment to serve you. And may we do so to the best of our ability. And may we seek to define ourselves by who you are and nothing else. May we find our identity in you. And may we express that that identity to others. May we be a light in the world around us. May we magnify you and glorify you in all that we do. Thank you for our new identity. Thank you for not giving up on us. And we pray, God, that we can continue to strive for greatness in your sight. Not out of performance, but because we love you and we want a relationship with you. May we be sons and daughters that make our Father proud. It's in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen.